You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The question pops up on social media from time to time. If you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Most people's answers have to do with relationships or credit-ruining purchases. My advice to 7, 13, or even 17-year-old me would be, voice acting is a thing. Become a voice actor. Voice acting is so much more than just cartoons. It's documentary narration, GPS voices, smart speakers, toys, and more. And if you can get in good, your career can be legendary even if people don't know your name or what you look like. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Wireless operators on ships, both military and merchant, had only heard Morse code coming through their headphones until Christmas Eve of 1906, when they heard a human voice singing Oh Holy Night with violin accompaniment and afterwards reading a passage from the Bible. This was heard by ships along the Atlantic Northeast Coast and from shore stations as far south as Norfolk, Virginia. A repeat broadcast was heard on New Year's Eve as far south as the West Indies. The voice was that of Canadian inventor and mathematician Reginald Fessenden, who was responsible for establishing the first transatlantic wireless telegraphic communication and what is considered to be the first voice work. Fessenden was excited by Alexander Graham Bell's new device, the telephone, and set out to create a way to remotely communicate without wires. In 1900, working for the United States Weather Bureau, Fessenden recorded the very first voiceover, a test he made reporting the weather. The following year, Guillermo Marconi, who is often credited as the father and inventor of radio, became the first person to transmit signals across the Atlantic Ocean. Though wireless communication was invaluable in World War I, broadcasts to the public were largely regional, amateur affairs. The first radio news program was broadcast on August 31, 1920, by station 8MK in Detroit, Michigan, which survives today as an all-news CBS station. The first college radio station began broadcasting two months later from Union College in Schenectady, New York. And is that ever not fun to say? Schenectady. Around the same time, station 2ADD, call letters were weird in the beginning, aired what is believed to be the first public entertainment broadcast in the U.S., a series of Thursday night concerts that could initially only be heard within a 100-mile or 160-kilometer radius, later expanding to 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. It wasn't much, but it was the start of broadcast voice work. The average person knows offhand that the first movie with diegetic or native sound was The Jazz Singer in 1927. But the biggest event in voice work came the following year, the first talkie cartoon. It was Steamboat Willie, 
with the prototype of Mickey Mouse voiced by none other than creator Walt Disney. Hot on its heels came next year's Looney Tunes. That's T-U-N-E-S like music, not T-O-O-N-S like cartoon. In the early days of animation, Disney produced short films called Silly Symphonies to promote and sell music, both records and sheet music. As Silly Symphonies gained popularity, Warner Brothers created its own equivalents, Merry Melodies and Looney Tunes. As for the Looney part of the name, Warner Brothers wanted to indicate that their cartoons were a little wackier than the sweet stuff Disney was offering. Cartoons quickly solidified their place as entertainment for both children and adults. One man in particular made Looney Tunes a powerhouse, the man of a thousand voices, Mel Blanc. He's considered to be the first outstanding voice actor in the industry, and voiced Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, Daffy Duck, Tweety Bird, Sylvester, Yosemite Sam, the Tasmanian Devil, Marvin the Martian, Pepe Le Pew, Speedy Gonzalez, and more. Raised in Portland, Oregon, he worked at KGW as an announcer and specialized in comic voices during the mid-1930s. It took Blank a year and a half to secure an audition with Leon Schlesinger's company, where he began in 1937. He also worked for Walter Lance, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Columbia, and even Disney for a time, until Schlesinger signed him to an exclusive contract. One of Mel Blanc's most important contributions to the voice work industry is recognition that the voice artists now enjoy. Originally, voice artists were not given any screen credit. After being turned down for a raise by tight-fisted Leon Schlesinger, Blank suggested that they add his name as vocal characterizationist to the credits as a compromise. Not only did it give a greater recognition to voice artists, but also from then on, helped to bring Blank himself to the public eye, and more work in radio. We almost didn't have as much of Mel Blank's voice work as we did. On January 24, 1961, Blank was in a near-fatal car accident on Sunset Boulevard. He suffered multiple fractures to both legs and his pelvis, as well as three skull fractures with bone displacement. He lay in a coma, unresponsive, for weeks. After many attempts by doctors and families to bring him out of this deep unconsciousness, one of his neurologists tried a different approach and asked Blank, How are you feeling today, Bugs? After a moment, in a quiet voice, Mel Blank replied, Just fine, Doc. What's up? The doctor then asked if Tweety Bird could talk, to which Blank replied, I taught I taught a putty tat. Sorry, I can't do the voices right now. You'll just have to imagine it. Mel Blank recovered shortly thereafter and kept doing what he did best, even from home while he was recovering. He would eventually pass away from coronary artery disease in 1989 at age 81. His tombstone in Hollywood Forever Cemetery reads, That's all, folks. Bonus fact, Bugs Bunny's habit of eating carrots while delivering one-liners was based on a scene from the film It Happened One Night, in which Clark Gable's character leans against a fence, eating carrots rapidly and talking with his mouth full to Claudette Colbert's character. Trouble was, Mel Blanc really didn't like carrots. He would bite and chew the carrots to get the sound he needed and immediately spit them out. Hopping back over to Disney, the House of Mouse also pioneered the full-length animated feature. Too much soon-to-be-disproven skepticism and derision, 
with Snow White in 1937. Adriana Casalotti was the daughter of Italian immigrants living in Connecticut. Both her mother and older sister sang opera, and her father gave voice lessons, so making best use of one's voice was sort of their thing. After a brief stint as a chorus girl, when she was only 18, Casalotti was hired to provide the voice for Snow White. She was paid $970, equivalent to about $17,000 today, typical for the non-union times. In most Hollywood stories, this would be step one of a meteoric rise. The movie was certainly a success, even briefly holding the title of highest-grossing sound film. So why isn't Adriana Casalotti a household name? All of my research indicates that Walt Disney did that on purpose. Casalotti was under contract with Disney, so she couldn't work for other studios. But Disney also never provided her with any other roles. Even radio and TV legend Jack Benny was turned away, with the explanation, That voice can't be used anywhere. I don't want to spoil the illusion of Snow White. It's the same reason Disney didn't credit his voice actors for the first six years of feature films. He didn't want anything to remind the buying public that the characters were just make-believe. Casalotti's only other cinematic contribution, for which she was paid $100, was to sing the falsetto line, Wherefore art thou Romeo, in the Tin Man song in The Wizard of Oz. I've actually got a number of bullet points on the dark secrets behind the happiest place on earth. Would you like to hear them? Share a social media post from this episode on Instagram and Facebook.com slash YourBrainOnFacts or Twitter at BrainOnFactsPod and say, tell us Disney's dark secrets. There's enough to fill a movie. I can almost see the trailer now. In a world. <coughs> oh, I cannot do the voice with the way my lungs are lately. Besides, only one man really could. The epic movie trailer guy, Don LaFontaine. Donald LaFontaine was called The King, Thunderthroat, and The Voice of God. His CV includes over 5,000 movie trailers and over 350,000 TV commercials, network promotions, and video game trailers. His signature phrase, in a world, is so well-known and parodied, LaFontaine himself parodied it once in a Geico ad. And amazingly, I could not find one clear recording of it that did not have background noise or music to use on this podcast. LaFontaine was born in 1940 in Duluth, Minnesota. At age 13, his voice changed, all at once, mid-sentence, and never faltered. Already a class clown, he became more popular with his friends for his ability to impersonate everyone's father over the phone. He began his career as a recording engineer at the National Recording Studios producing commercial spots for Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. LaFontaine worked behind the mic until 1964, when he had to fill in for a missing voice actor to finish a promo spot for 1964's Gunfighters of Casa Grande for a client presentation. The client bought the spots, and LaFontaine's career as a voice actor began. LaFontaine developed his signature style of a strong narrative approach and heavy melodramatic colorization of his voice work. In 1976, he started his own company producing movie trailers. He moved to Los Angeles in 81 and was contacted by an agent 
launching a career that spanned three decades. LaFontaine's signature voice came with a busy schedule. He could voice about 60 promotions a week, sometimes three or more in a given day. Most studios were willing to pay a premium for his services. It was said that his voiceover added prestige and excitement, a certain gravitas, to what might otherwise be a box office failure. In a 2007 interview, LaFontaine explained the strategy behind his signature phrase, in a world. We have to very rapidly establish the world we're transporting them to. That's easily done by saying, in a world where violence rules, in a world where men are slaves and women are conquerors. You very rapidly set the scene. Wait, what was that second movie? I want to watch that one. LaFontaine became so successful that he would arrive at his voiceover jobs in a personalized limo with full-time driver, until he began recording from his palatial estate in the Hollywood Hills, thanks to the internet and the advent of ISDN technology. This allows voice actors to communicate in high definition in real time with studios around the world. Sadly, LaFontaine died suddenly of a blood clot in the lung in 2008. Now all we have is that inception noise. I mean, it was cool at first, but now... Meh. You know what's just as cool as ever, though? The people who keep this show up and running over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Thanks, as always, to our brain teasers, Baron, Amber, and Dan of the Bunny Trails podcast. Our brainstormers, Vera, Nathan, Seth, Sean, and our newest patron, Ryan, of the Conspiracy Theoryology podcast. And our brain candies, Adam Baum and Michael Kay. They get stickers, early access to the regular episodes, and bonus mini-episodes, where I sometimes cover topics that would be less appropriate for a general audience. This past week, patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts hit its first goal of $50, which covers a lot of the out-of-pocket expenses associated with putting on a podcast. Once we hit the second goal of $75 a month, half of the money coming in will go right back out to other creators, especially those who make resources for others, like Kevin McLeod, whose free music you hear on a ton of podcasts, including this one, and lots of YouTube channels. Our third level goal is $100 a month, at which point all contributions go to charity. So a small donation each month becomes part of a larger effort to help multiple creators and nonprofits. That's a lot of mileage for your moolah. If you've heard old movies or newsreels from the 30s and 40s, you've probably heard that weird old-timey voice everyone seemed to use. It sounded a little like a blend between American English and British English, but not at the same time. Did everyone just talk this way between the world wars? Not everyone, no. Only the people who did it on purpose. This type of pronunciation is called the transatlantic or mid-Atlantic accent. Not mid-Atlantic like Virginia and Maryland, but middle of the Atlantic. Unlike most accents, instead of naturally evolving, the transatlantic accent was acquired. People in the United States were taught to speak in this voice. Historically, transatlantic speech was the hallmark of the American aristocracy, and by extension, the theater. In upper-class boarding schools across New England, students learned the transatlantic accent 
as a sort of international form of communication, similar to the way posh British society used received pronunciation, which we'll get into in a minute. Mid-Atlantic English was the dominant dialect among Northeastern American upper class for the first half of the 20th century, and as such it became popular in the theater and then other forms of entertainment. Transatlantic has several quasi-British elements, such as a lack of roticity. This means that transatlantic speakers drop the R at the end of a word, like winner or clear. They'll also use softer British-sounding vowels, like dance or fast. While those sounds were reduced, emphasis was put on T's. In American English, we often produce a T in the middle of a word, like writer or water, as if it were a D. Transatlantic speakers pounce on that T, writer, water. The speech pattern isn't exactly British or completely American. It's a form of English that's sort of hard to place, and that's part of why Hollywood loved it. With the evolution of talkies in the late 1920s, voice was first heard in motion pictures. It was then that the majority of audiences first heard Hollywood actors speaking predominantly transatlantic English. But why do so many speakers from that time have a high nasal quality to their voice? There's a theory that technological constraints, combined with this schooled accent, created that iconic form of speech. According to Duke University professor Jay Obersky, this sound is an artifact from the early days of radio. Radio receivers back then had very little bass technology, so it was difficult, if not impossible, to hear bass tones on a home device. Speakers with pleasing full baritones were no good on early radio. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So where did transatlantic pronunciation go? Linguist William Labov noted that the transatlantic speech fell out of favor after World War II, as fewer teachers taught it to their students, and radio and movie sound technology evolved to be able to handle the full range of sound. It's not gone entirely, though. British expats like Anthony Hopkins still use it, and it pops up in place of many actors' natural British accents. The example that leaps to my mind is Warwick Davis. You may know him from the Leprechaun movies, Professor Flitwick and Harry Potter, some 80 other roles. His first major film role was the titular Willow in 1988, for which he was taught the transatlantic accent, because the studio heads thought that Americans wouldn't be able to understand him. Sigh. 
I could do a whole episode on executives thinking the average person was submoronic. Did you ever once have a problem with Warwick Davis's accent? Or anything less clear than Brad Pitt's character in Snatch? Let us know on social media. I have a feeling, call it a hunch, those movie executives were wrong. The transatlantic accent made Americans sound vaguely British. But how can you make British people sound more British? Like the maximum amount of Britishness. Like a cup of Earl Grey tea served with a dry scone smeared with marmalade and imperialism. You teach them received pronunciation. Received pronunciation, or RP, is the instantly recognizable super British accent often described as the Queen's English, Oxford English, or BBC English. RP is described as the standard form of British English pronunciation, though only about 2% of Brits speak it. Back when the BBC first launched in 1922, the first general manager, Sir John Reith, insisted the BBC be as formal and quintessentially British as possible, and he created a number of rules. One thing he stressed in particular was the newscasters speak the King's English. He felt it was, quote, a style or quality of English that would not be laughed at in any part of the country. He also assumed RP would be easier for people across the empire to understand versus a regional accent, of which the tiny landmass of the UK has dozens, if not a hundred. Reese wanted things to be just so, even ordering that any newscaster reading the news after 8pm had to wear a dinner jacket while on the air, on the radio, where no one could see them. The BBC didn't create received pronunciation, though. We can trace its origins back to the secondary schools and universities of 19th century Britain, making it the accent for a certain social class, the one with money. Their speech patterns, based loosely on the local accent of the Southeast Midlands, roughly London, Oxford, and Cambridge, soon came to be associated with the establishment. Although one of Reith's goals in using RP was to appeal to the widest audience possible, Many listeners still felt alienated by the broadcasts being beamed into their home because of this upper-class accent. Despite this, newscasters were required to use received pronunciation right up until World War II. Why change it during a war? Don't you have bigger things to worry about? Well, the Ministry of Information was worried about Nazis hijacking the radio waves. During World War II, Nazi Germany invested a lot of time and money to train its spies and propagandists to speak using perfect received pronunciation so they could pass as British. If they pulled it off, the Nazis could potentially issue orders over the radio in a thoroughly convincing and official-sounding newscaster voice. Therefore, the BBC hired several newscasters possessed of broad regional accents that would be more difficult for the Nazis to perfectly copy, and as a bonus might also appeal better to the common man. The first person to read the news on the BBC with a regional accent was one Wilfred Pickles in 1941. Far from being popular, his mild Yorkshire accent offended many listeners so much that they wrote in to the BBC, blaming them for having the audacity to sully the news in this way. 
Nevertheless, after the end of World War II, the BBC continued to loosen its guidelines and hire more people who spoke with the respective accent of the region in which they were being broadcast. That said, the BBC does continue to select newscasters with only the most mild accents for international broadcasts. You can't please everyone, but if you can get in good in the voice work industry, you can take on a staggering amount of work. How much? Here are some examples from the cast of one of my favorite shows, Futurama. You might say my husband and I are hardcore fans. We had a hypnotoad wedding cake. Billy West, the voice of Fry, Professor Farnsworth, and Zoidberg, as well as both Wren and Stimpy, has 241 acting credits on his IMDb page. Maurice LaMarche, who does Calculon, Morbo, and Kiff, and is the go-to guy for Orson Welles impressions like Brain from Animaniac, has 362 roles listed. Tress McNeil, who did basically every female who wasn't Amy or Leela, as well as Dot on Animaniacs and Agnes Skinner on The Simpsons, has 366 roles to her name. Bender's voice actor, John DiMaggio, without whom the Gears of War video games wouldn't be the same, has worked on some 377 projects. The man who made Hermes Conrad Jamaican and gave us Samurai Jack, Phil Lamar, is the most prolific actor on cast, with a whopping 433 credits to his name. Still, he falls short of the resume of Rob Paulson, who did the voice of Yakko and Pinky on Animaniacs, and other examples too numerous to list, because his IMDb page has 503 voice acting roles listed. And did I mention they're bringing Animaniacs back next year? Paulson is trailing behind Tara Strong, though. The actress who voiced Bubbles on Powerpuff Girls, Raven on Teen Titans, and Timmy on Fairly Odd Parents has 561 roles from her 33-year career, or an average of about 17 a year. 17 over 12 months may not sound impressive, but have you ever tried getting one acting job? Strong can't hold a candle to the man whose voice I can identify from two rooms away, a man who will always be Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop, no matter who he's playing, Steve Bloom, who has racked up 750 voice roles. And those are just the actors I could think of off the top of my head. So when career day rolls around, maybe skip doctor and firefighter and suggest your kid become a voice actor. Sure, you say, that sounds like a sweet gig. Walk in, say a few things, cash the check. Slow down there, friendo. If it was that easy, everyone would do it. For starters, there's no got it in one take in voice acting. Be prepared to do your lines over and over and over with different emphasis, with different inflection, with different pacing, or sometimes simply saying it again and again until, even though it sounds the same to you, the director gets the subtle difference they're looking for. Even veteran voice actors like Chris Parnell, who voices Cyril on Archer, and is known in the industry for doing it correctly the first time, is still required to record dozens of takes of each line. Bonus fact, 
That feeling you get when you say a word or phrase so much that it starts to seem like meaningless noise is called semantic satiation. You may be standing in a little booth all day, but that doesn't mean it won't be physically taxing on you. Actors dubbing anime in particular are required to do a lot of screaming. Chris Sabat, who voices Vegeta in the Dragon Ball series, says that even with his background in opera and the voice control that that taught him, I will literally be sick the next day. I will have flu-like symptoms. Because you have to use so much energy and use up so much of your voice to put power into those scenes, it will make you sick. It's not an exaggeration. I will be bedridden sometimes after screaming for so long. That is, if you can land a gig. Remember how I rattled off actors who've had hundreds of roles each? That's because, in rough figures, 5% of the actors get 95% of the work. So unless you're Tara Strong or Phil Lamar, noteworthy roles will be hard to come by. One plus side is you get paid by the word, as well as by the tag. A tag is part of a recording that can be swapped out. Say you record a commercial, and also record the phrases, coming soon, opening this Monday, and open now. The client gets three different commercials from one recording session, so you get more money. Assuming a client actually orders a session. You may find yourself on standby, or avail, as they call it in the industry. You'll be asked to set aside a few hours, or even a few days, for recording. The problem is, the client isn't actually obligated to use you during the time, and no one else can book you until the client releases you from it. But it's a job you can do in your PJs, and that's always a plus. I'm in my PJs right now. Even though no one can see the actors, voice work still uses props. While computers can be used to speed up or slow down dialogue, which is especially important when dubbing anime where the visuals are already done and can't be changed, certain vocal changes can be achieved using random items in the studio. If the character's in a hollowed-out tree, I might stick my head in a wastebasket, veteran voice actor Corey Burton told Mental Floss. If it doesn't sound quite right, I'll throw in some wadded-up Kleenex for better acoustics. Burton, like Mel Blanc, prefers to eat real food when the moment calls for it. They want you to sometimes just go nom nom nom. No, I want a carrot, a cookie, I don't want to make dry slurping noises when I could be sipping a drink. Pencils also play an important role, not for making notes on the script or creating any sort of convincing pencil-based sound effect. The plague of voice performers is plosives. You've probably heard them on podcasts. They've definitely been on mine. A plosive is the noise you get when a consonant is produced by stopping the airflow using the lips, teeth, or palate, followed by a sudden release of air. It's called popping your peas, since that's the worst culprit. A round mesh screen in front of the mic helps, but the old-school trick to stop plosives actually uses a pencil. If you're getting pea pops on the recording, a voice actor will hold a pencil or similar linear object upright against their lips. This disrupts the air enough to avoid the giant, sharp spike in the sound wave. Now, if only there were some cheap and easy trick to get rid of mouth noise and lip smacks. You may hear them on this podcast, but for everyone you hear, I cut about 20 out. 
And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Not every screen actor is able to transition to voice work successfully. We've all heard flat, lackluster performances from big-name stars in animated features. Not so with the person who arguably kicked off the trend of booking big names to do voice work. Robin Williams, in his role as Genie. Williams recorded 30 hours of dialogue, most of it improvised, for the 90-minute movie. He took the role for 9% of the fee he normally commanded, with the condition that the recordings not be used to merchandise products. He wanted to, quote, leave something wonderful behind for his kids. Good luck, Will Smith. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.